You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked towards the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine, flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer according to the number of persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered, some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. 
And Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. Well, good morning, everyone. And before I get into this, I just wanted to welcome you today and say how great it is to see you all today. Obviously, it's a crazy time and we don't know how long these restrictions will be the way they are, but it's just so important for us to gather like this. It's it's so valuable for us and so I'm so thankful that you're here and I just pray that it's a great time together. How about we pray as we get into God's Word? Father, we thank you for your Word. We thank you that uh, you give it to us uh, and it's true and it's complete and it, it's what we need and it's living and uh, you change us as your spirit works through it. So I pray that that might happen today in this moment. That the words that were written thousands of years ago might uh, come to life today in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I am a grumbler. I am a complainer. I complain and grumble about so many different things. I complain about the weather. Uh, but not normally the way most people do. I actually love cold, wet, grey weather. So when everyone else is saying it's perfect, I'm grumbling because I'm frustrated by it. I grumble about people, the silly things that they do, the fact that they drive the way that they do, the fact that they're standing in front of me in a queue. I grumble about that. I, I grumble about science. One of the biggest things I grumble about is physics. As someone who's extremely clumsy, is constantly bumping into things, dropping things, I grumble about that. I'll be taking a plate to the kitchen sink, the knife will fall off and I'll grumble about physics. I, I grumble all the time. I don't always say it out loud, but it's there. And to be honest, I think I actually enjoy grumbling. Yes, I'm grumbling because I'm annoyed, but there's something enjoyable, something cathartic about getting it out there or feeling the frustration at the, the world around me. There's, there's nothing better, basically, than finding the smallest room in the house and uh, getting your phone and then reading on Twitter and getting annoyed at all of the stupid things that people are thinking and doing and saying. It's just it's a pastime for me. And I suspect that I'm actually not the only person like this. You see, I think we all enjoy grumbling to a certain degree. Uh, what's the easiest way to get to know people at your workplace? It's to grumble about the boss. Uh, what's the best way to get to know the neighbours? It's to grumble about the local council, how they didn't pick up the bins before 12 o'clock on Friday, or if the, there's the hoon around the corner. It's one of the best ways to make friends in the neighbourhood. We enjoy grumbling. And really here in Victoria, we've had the Olympics of grumbling uh, with the lockdown over the last couple of weeks. Uh, there's nothing more grumble-inducing for me than a lockdown. And so all day I'm just chuntering around, frustrated about everything and telling my poor wife she has to listen to me as I stroll around the kitchen complaining. It's, it's just this kind of Olympics of grumbling. I'm just doing it all day long. But I've been quite convicted about this recently because I've been thinking about today's part of Exodus. We're midway through the book of Exodus, uh, our series in Exodus, and really we've come to a part where God's people are constantly grumbling. The context is uh, we started Exodus with God's people enslaved in Egypt, desperately crying out to God for rescue. 
Uh, and over the last few weeks, we're seeing God come through for them in a very dramatic way. We saw him overcome the Egyptian gods, show their impotence, and then uh, destroy Pharaoh, the hard-hearted Pharaoh who constantly resisted him and fought against him. God had provided for his people miraculously. We saw last week uh, on digital, you saw that uh, God made a way for them through the Red Sea, parted the sea so that his people could be safe. And so here they are, they've come through, they're finally free. They've come through all of this crisis and this difficulty. They're no longer slaves and they're finally out into the open. Life is ahead of them. They're, they're heading towards the promised land, the, God, the, the land that God had promised for them that would be flowing with milk and honey. Everything's looking good, except now they face crossing the wilderness. You see, now they're not in Egypt anymore, but they're not yet in the promised land and what they face now are the challenges of the wilderness. And we're going to see that at each point today, they grumble as they face these difficulties. The first sign of this comes in chapter 15, verse 22. Then Moses made Israel sit out from the Red Sea and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. Finally, they do find water, but it turns out that it's bitter. So Moses prays to God. God uh, miraculously changes the water so that it's sweet. Uh, but the people have grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? They're complaining about this situation. God comes through, but they've complained. Soon they're at it again after that they God leads them to this beautiful little desert oasis at a place called Elam. It's got 12 springs for the 12 tribes, 70 palm trees, so everyone's able to be protected from the sun. But in time, they must move on from there and keep walking through the wilderness. And soon, uh, about a month later, they face an obstacle. Chapter 16, verse 2, they, they uh, are running out of food and they begin to grumble once more. The whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. But again, God responds, verse 12, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel and he provides for them this stuff called manna. Uh, miraculously, the next morning they wake up and there's this dew-like substance on the ground, fine as frost, we're told. They call it manna, which means what is it? And it's God's special provision for them. It comes every day, every morning. Uh, morning by morning they gathered it, verse 21. Well, except for one day in the week. See, God designs this manna to come every day, except on Friday he provides two helpings because he wants them to have a Sabbath on the Saturday. He wants them to have a full day of rest where they worship God and they spend time together and they, they just recover from the week and they, it's a day of rest for them. And so he provides a double helping the day beforehand so that they can do that. It's, it's, it's a wonderful grace from God. And everyone has enough. We're told in verse 17, they gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omar, which is an ancient measurement, uh, whoever gathered much had nothing left over. Whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. Not too little, not too much, but just right. It's perfect for them. And it tastes amazing. Verse 31, it the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. And that's actually symbolic. Uh, remember what I said before, they were heading to the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. And here God is giving them a foretaste of that, an appetizer, so to speak. He wants them to taste the promised land throughout their journey. And so we're actually told in verse 35 that they ate the manna until they came to the, to the border of the promised land. 
God provided for them all of that time with this manna. It is the bread from heaven, God's gracious, miraculous provision for them, showing that he loved them. But even with that, they still grumble. As chapter 17 begins, God, they're walking through the wilderness until they make camp at a place called Rephidim. Again, however, there's no water for the people to drink, and so they grumble. Therefore, the people quarrelled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. It's aggressive here. It's almost a mutiny. And they say in verse 3, the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? They're basically accusing Moses of, of being a murderer. But even despite this, despite their mutiny almost of, of God's appointed leader for them, God provides for them in dramatic fashion. Moses is instructed to strike a rock with the staff that had led them through the, uh, through the Red Sea and then water flows from the stone. God provides for them yet again. And yet we've seen this pattern, haven't we? There's provision, and then they grumble. God provides for them again. It's this story of grumbling. And as I was reading this and, and studying this, it, it made me think about my own grumbling and how dangerous grumbling can be, how poisonous it can be. And I want to suggest three ways in which it can really damage our thinking. The first is that when we grumble, we forget God's grace. That's really what's happening when we grumble. Now, that's the big thing that you see throughout this passage. You see, chapter 15 opens with God's people have just come through the Red Sea. They've experienced this miraculous provision, this rescue, and they're singing, they're celebrating God. Chapter 15, verse 11, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? I mean, they're on a spiritual high. They're in love with God, so to speak. But then just a few days later, they're grumbling. They've forgotten God's grace. They've forgotten his wonders and his glorious deeds. They're no longer singing. They're grumbling. At each point, God is gracious to them. He provides for them, but then they forget it. We see that throughout these passages. God meets their grumbling with grace. They respond to his grace with grumbling. Now, of course, I'm not denying that they were in need. They were hungry. They were thirsty. That makes sense. But what's striking is that they seem to almost panic when that happens. And it's like they can, cannot even conceive of God providing for them. They've completely forgotten how he provides for them every time. Now, I'd love to just <laughs> condemn all of that. But I can't because I know that I'm the same. God is so good to me. I live in a wonderful country. I have so much opportunity. Even when our life is shrunk down to five kilometres, I have a full five kilometres. I have a wonderful house. I have great walks that I can go in, a beautiful autumn tree just outside my window. I have wonderful opportunities, wealth. It's not just material things as well. I've got a wonderful wife, three great kids. Uh, I have fulfilling work with great people. I'm part of a church full of people that I love. All of God's grace is there for me, and yet still I grumble all the time. 
Anytime my comfort is disturbed, even just a little bit, I get frustrated, and I'm angry. I'm basically like a cat. You know, if you've got a cat, you know this, that they're just all about comfort. And the slightest little move you make, they'll move. They'll get it, they'll go, oh, I'm done. That's me. That's what I'm like. And often I've noticed I do this after I've experienced God's incredible dramatic grace. So often in my life I'll be praying, oh, God, please help me with this thing, this project, this sermon or this pastoral conversation, whatever it is. I'm worried about it. I'm anxious and I'm praying, God, please come through. And then he does come through. And yet a few days later I'll have basically forgotten that. I've forgotten to thank him. Or the next time something comes up, I'll somehow forget that he came through for me last time and I'll wonder if he will the next time. I'm constantly forgetting God's grace. And so the alternative, of course, is to remember God's grace, to be thankful. Now, I know that that sounds obvious and it probably sounds a bit trite and simplistic, but I want you to try it this week. I want you to try thanking God for things in your life. Every day, journal five, ten things that you are thankful for. Spend time remembering God's grace and you will discover the power of that. Take anxiety, for instance. Anxiety is really uh, flows into and from grumbling. You, you see the Israelites were anxious about their food and their water and so they grumble. Uh, anxiety is really tied to these things. Well, look what Paul says in Philippians 4. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. When there's a crisis, when you're anxious about something, it's easy to forget God's grace and how he's provided for you in the past. Try remembering his grace and see how that transforms your present and your view about the future. Remember God's grace. But the second thing that I see here is that when we grumble, we question God's plan. You see, it's quite extraordinary, some of the stuff that the Israelites say. Uh, just look at chapter 16 where we are reading. Verse 2, the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness and they say, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. It's quite extraordinary. I mean, they're attacking Moses and Aaron, but really they're attacking God. Verse 8, Moses says, your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. And just look at what they're saying. Would that we had died in Egypt. Somehow they've remembered Egypt as this place of full bellies and provision, when we know that that was not the case. You remember back in chapter 1, that they're treated ruthlessly by the Egyptians and they're desperately crying for, out for rescue. This was not a good time and somehow they're remembering it as a, they've changed the way they've seen the whole thing and now they're accusing God of, of ill will, that his whole plan to bring them out of Egypt and into the promised land is actually a bad thing. They're questioning God's plan. Philip Reichen says the word grumbling hardly does the Israelites justice. They were repudiating their relationship with him. In effect, they were saying that they wished they had never been saved. There's something blasphemous in that. God has been so gracious to them. 
and they're just throwing it back in his face. But I think underneath this, they're missing something. They're questioning God's plan because they don't understand that even these difficulties are part of God's plan. You see, just just, uh, at the start of this passage, chapter 4, we read this. But God says, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. And and we're told in chapter 15 that he does all this to test them. Now, at first we might be a bit uh, troubled by that thought that God is testing them. Is he trying to embarrass them? Is he trying to show them up? Well, no, that's not the case. He's testing them to help them, to develop them. I know we have some teachers here. Think about why you give your kids a test. It's not to embarrass them. It's to help them. uh, It's to work out exactly how far they've come. What have they learnt? What more do they need to know? How much have they really grasped and what more do do they need to learn? The testing is designed to help them, to train them. And it's the same here. When he brought them out from Egypt, he could have just, it could have just kind of jumped to the promised land or something like that or kind of rushed them through the wilderness. But he's chosen not to because he wants to use this time to test them, to develop them. They walk through the wilderness so that they can learn something. And ultimately he's saying, I want to test them to see if they will obey my law. What what he's saying there is, I want to see if they will listen to what I say. God's law reflects God's character, God's design, God's purpose for us. And he wants to see if they will listen to that and trust him and follow his way, follow the instructions, follow the, the maker's manual, so to speak. We have a good example of that uh, with the manna. As I said, it was provided every day but not on Sunday. Now, at first, the people here, it's going to be provided every day, but then some of them doubt this. and So they, they grab the, the manna and then they try to hold on to it. Then the next day, by 24 hours later, that manna that they've tried to hoard away, store up, has got worms in it. You can't eat it. And so they need to trust that God will provide for them every day. And then when it comes to the the weekend, magically, miraculously, the manna does last for two days. But again, some of the people go out and try and grab more manna. They're disobeying God. And God says, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. He's saying, just trust me. I will provide. Have a rest. That's what I want you to do. I want you to see that my rules are designed to bless you. I've designed this for you, for your good. But they keep forgetting this. So, so, so God is really trying to help them see his goodness. He wants to say, will you trust me? And I think in all of the obstacles that we face, God is trying to help us see his goodness. You see, the the Israelites are kind of wasting all of God's lessons right now. They see this whole wilderness thing as just a chore, an obstacle, something to get through, not something that God can work through. And it's the same with us. Paul Tripp says, we want a life without obstacles. 
But those obstacles are God's primary way of completing his work in you. You see, our experience is not too dissimilar to the Israelites in a sense. Just like the Israelites, we have been rescued, been rescued from God's judgment. If you trust in Jesus, that judgment, you don't, you don't face that judgment. You've been rescued from that. You've been freed from a slavery to sin. You've had an exodus experience. And there's a promised land waiting for you, an eternity with God. That's what's ahead of you. That's what you've come from and where you're going to. But you now have to face living through the wilderness of this life. We know what's ahead, but it's not yet experienced for us. And so we walk through this time, a time of frustration, time of suffering and heartbreak at times, but also a time of temptation where we feel the vulnerabilities of our own nature, our own sin. This is the wilderness that we walk through. And often we resent that. We just want, we see all of these things as obstacles. And we wish that God had just kind of ignored this. Couldn't you just say that when, you, when I trust in you, I just jump straight to heaven or something like that? But that's not God's plan. God has a plan and our difficulties are a part of it. And so this is a moment of testing, not to find us out, not to embarrass us, but to build us, to strengthen us, to see if we will listen to him and be grown through him, by him. And when I fight this, I'm doing exactly what the Israelites did. I'm questioning God's plan and effectively short-circuiting his work in me. This is offensive to God. Philip Ryken says, this is why God always takes our complaints personally. He knows that when we grumble about our personal circumstances, what we're really doing is finding fault with him. So I, I get angry because I think I deserve better. I get anxious because I'm not in control and I don't trust the one who is in control. I can't see what he's doing. I don't think he's running the world the way he should. Of course, that's offensive to God if I'm thinking that. Paul Tripp says, if you believe that God is the creator and controller of all that is, then it is impossible to complain about your circumstances without complaining about God. God has a plan for you and for me, and our difficulties are a part of it. Now, I think it's important here to draw a bit of a distinction. See, there is grumbling, which is constantly uh, frowned upon in the Bible, but there's this other thing called lament, which is actually praised in the Bible. We see lots of psalms in the Bible, which are examples of lament, where God's people cry out in their circumstances. So what's the difference? Well, I think the difference is when we grumble, it's all internalised and it often takes us away from God. So God's people here, the Israelites, they don't bring their grumbling to God. They just throw their circumstances at him. They're angry. And it actually takes them further away from him. But when God's people lament, the key difference is they bring their circumstances to God. They bring it in humility, but also with this desire to see God come through. And what's interesting, when you read the Psalms of Lament, they're all kind of framed by God's plan. 
They grasp that there is a plan. And even if they don't see it, they trust that there is one there. And so they ask God to reveal that plan or to, to, to keep the plan. So Psalm 44, for instance, we read, We have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. We remember your grace from the past. We don't forget this. But then they're saying, our experience right now feels very different to this. Verse 23, Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? They're saying, here is my lament. What's going on here? But notice they're still bringing it to God. They're saying, you are the God of this plan, and so we're keeping on trusting you, but please come through for us. But then as this happens, as they keep trusting him, they start to find his plan. Psalm 44, verse 26, rise up, come to our help, redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. There's this confidence that God's love is steadfast, that the grace is shown in the past, he will renew. They're not questioning God's plan. They're seeking to trust him in it. And the reason we can trust God is that he keeps showing that he can do what he has promised to do. Philip Ryken says, one reason to trust God is that he can turn what is bitter into something sweet. That's what he did here with the bitter water. He turns it into something sweet. And so we can trust that he will do that with our lives as well. So James says in James 1, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's the voice of someone who has had difficult experiences, who's had obstacles, but instead of just grumbling about them, he's lamented and brought them to God and seen God's plan in them. So this week, I want you to try something. Maybe there's an obstacle in your life, something that feels like it's just a curse. might be a small thing. It's probably a big thing, something that you just constantly complain about. Try to lament about that. Bring that to God. Ask, say to him, look, I don't understand why this is here. I, I find this so hard. You might say some horrible things to God, but I'd rather you said it to God than about him. Lament brings it to God. Try to remember his grace. And even if you question God's plan, ask him to reveal it and trust that there is a plan, that he is in control and that he will work something good from it. Romans 8:28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. This bad thing in your life. God will work for good. Trust him. So underneath that, that will only happen if we can trust God's character. And that's the third thing that I see here. When we grumble, we doubt God's goodness. That's ultimately what's playing here. And you see this with uh, the Israelites. This is most obviously in chapter 17. Uh, They grumble once more about the lack of water. Just look at what uh, Moses says. Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? Why do you test the Lord? Uh, That's quite a striking statement. We're seeing that God tests his people. 
that God uh, searches them and sees what they're like. He tests their character, so to speak. And now God's people are actually testing God. That's pretty extraordinary. I mean, do we really have the right to do that? But here, this whole chapter 17 is set up as a kind of court case. So we have the Israelites on one side and God on the other on the rock. That's what we read here in chapter 17. And then Moses is in the middle as the judge, as the adjudicator. And really what happens, what's happening here is they're, they're having a, a court case about the covenant. God has made a covenant, an agreement with his people. He said, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to lead you to the promised land. And the Israelites have brought him to court to say, look, you're not keeping this covenant. Our life is difficult. There's obstacles. This isn't working for us. So we're, you're on trial. Now, as, as we read this passage, we've been reading the evidence. But actually God has been faithful. At every step, he's been gracious to them. He's provided for them constantly. So we know who should win this court case. But I want you to see what God says to Moses. Verse 5, the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I'll stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. So Israelites on one side, God on the other. Moses walks through the middle. What does he do? He strikes God. He judges God. God tells him, strike me. Now we've been reading this and we know that God has kept the covenant. It's the people who aren't keeping the covenant. But God says, even though they deserve the punishment, strike me instead. That reminds us of something, doesn't it? God always does this. You see, the God that we see in Exodus is the God that we see in Jesus. When Jesus came, he showed that he was the good God of Exodus, the God who provides. He was the God who heals the sick, and raises the dead, feeds the hungry. We see this throughout the Gospels. But we also see that even when he does this, God's people respond by testing him and grumbling. John 6, they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. They're saying, we know what God can do. He provided manna for our forefathers. What can you do? Prove your power. Prove your goodness. We're testing you. And Jesus says, verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Verse 49, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. What he's talking about here, of course, is, is a spiritual provision. The Israelites are just constantly focused on uh, physical, material stuff. Can you give us this bread now? Can you make us rich and powerful? And Jesus says, I can give you something much better than this. I can provide for you eternally. I can provide for you spiritually through the work that he does on the cross by dealing with our sin. You see, our grumbling, our complaining, 
our forgetting of God's grace, our refusal to trust his plan, our doubting of his goodness. Ultimately, that's sin. And it's a sin that's been within humankind since the Garden of Eden. You see, Adam and Eve, they're given very clear instructions by God. They're asked to trust him. He's testing them in the sense that he wants to say, will you trust my goodness? Will you trust my design for you? And, of course, they don't. They disobey him. And humanity has done the same ever since. We're constantly forgetting God's grace, questioning his plan, ultimately doubting his goodness. And that must be dealt with. The God of grace at some point must judge that. The wonder of the gospel is that he judges it on himself. Jesus is the one who was broken for our sin. He is the rock that is struck by God and from whom the blessing flows. When Moses struck the rock, the waters flowed. And so when God strikes Jesus, the waters flow for us. Jesus said, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. And we remember this when we take communion, don't we? When we come to the Lord's Supper, this is the body of Christ broken for sin, broken for us. This is the blood of Jesus shed for sins. That's not the literal body and blood of Jesus, but we take this as a way of symbolically experiencing this, of taking in what Jesus has done for us. I remember the first time I took communion. I've said this before, but I grew up and I had a very intellectual faith. And the first time I, I ate the, broad, the, the bread and remembered what Jesus had done for me and drank the wine and remembered his, his blood that was shed for me, it made it so much more real. went from my head to my heart. It was feeding on what Christ had done for me. Have you done that? Have you experienced the bread of life? And then Jesus promises to give us new life. John 7, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. He's talking about the spirit here. You see, when we believe in Jesus, God comes to live inside us and we have this flow, this spring of living water changing and transforming our lives. One of the signs of this will be that we become thankful people. We're not just grumpy. We're not just grumbling about everything. We remember God's grace. We question God's plan, but then we trust that there is a plan because he's in control. And we start to see it more and more. And as we see it, we see God's goodness. Yesterday I was watching this video, this singer, on America's Got Talent. You'll see it this week. It'll be all over uh, Facebook. Anyways, this woman, she's 30. She's had cancer three times. And she sings this song about her experience and uh, it's very moving and Simon Cowell starts crying. It's it's great. Anyway, um, she's also got a blog and I went on and saw this blog and it seems that she is a Christian and her story is quite extraordinary. Not only did she have the cancer but after one of her diagnoses, her husband left her and everything. And there's so much sadness in her life. 
But what I love about it is she doesn't grumble. She laments. She brings it to God. She says this, I am God's downstairs neighbour, banging on the ceiling with a broomstick. I show up at his door every day, sometimes with songs, sometimes with curses, sometimes apologies, gifts, questions, demands. I've called him a cheat and a liar and I meant it. I have told him I wanted to die and I meant it. Tears have become the only prayer I know. If you've read the Psalms, you know that that's the kind of language we see in the Psalms. And then she goes on to talk about how uh, God's people, the Israelites, were looking for uh, what she calls the mercy bread from heaven, the, the, the manna from heaven. God's mercy coming down for them to sustain them. And she says, I look hard for the answers to the prayers that I didn't pray. I look for the mercy bread, the manna that he promised to bake fresh for me each morning. The Israelites called it manna, which means what is it? That's the same question I'm asking again and again. There's mercy here somewhere, but what is it? She's looking for God's plan. She's trying to understand God's goodness but she keeps trusting him and she starts to see it. Call me cursed, call me lost, call me scorned, but that's not all. Call me chosen, blessed, sought after. Call me the one who God whispers his secrets to. I am the one whose belly is filled with loaves of mercy that were hidden for me. That's someone who's learned not to grumble but to praise, even in the obstacles, even in the wilderness. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you humbly and convicted. We know that we are grumblers. We grumble about lots of little things and then big things as well. It's so easy for us to just, in these circumstances, to, to drift away from you to throw our accusations at you, to not think that you care or to accuse you of being evil or uncaring and unloving and unwise. Ultimately, we question your plan. We doubt your goodness. You don't deserve that. You have only been gracious to us. Forgive us for forgetting your grace. Forgive us for doubting your wisdom your kindness. Transform us. Thank you for what you've done in Jesus. And if you have given us Jesus, then what more can we, why else would we doubt? So help us to find the true gift of Jesus, to really grasp what you have done for us. And may that transform us. We come to you looking for water, asking for you to give us living springs within springs of praise and thankfulness. Lord, I pray for those here today who face great obstacles, great trials. Lord, help them to lament and to find you in it, to find your grace and your strength because it's there. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.